Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's a La Liga end of season special on the Gaggenpod. La Liga TV's Phil Kittramalitis joins me, your host, Teo Pelizzari, as we go from top to tail on the 2022-23 season. The six-way relegation battle, Barcelona claiming the title, what's next for Real Madrid, and plenty more. It's all coming up as we talk all things Spanish football and La Liga right here on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. It is a La Liga special to end the season and our favourite from La Liga TV, Phil Kittramalides, joins us. Phil, it's so great to have you back on the Pod. Thank you very much for having me. We've got lots to talk about, haven't we? We certainly do. And I want to start where with what I was doing at 5am on Monday morning here in Australia. Of course, it was prime time in Spain and that was the five-way relegation battle. Our Optus Sport viewers got to enjoy the whip-around coverage with all the goals as they went in and all the big incidents. It was a fascinating final day. How did you experience it and take it in? And what was your experience of the five crucial games at once? Yeah, I mean... Um... I think it was quite historic. I don't think we've ever had so many teams that could go down on the final day. Um, You say it was a five-way. It was with five different games. Six different teams. Six different teams being able to go down on the on the final day of the season. That is genuinely historic. That's that's never happened before, and it might not ever happen again. So it was very very exciting. And then the games itself, some were some were more exciting than others. Everything hinged on that Valladolid Getafe game because if Getafe had beaten Valladolid, Valladolid would go down, and everybody else was safe. But they didn't, and that game stayed nil nil for the whole um, ninety six minutes or so, which meant that everybody else was looking over their shoulders. And and it was it was also interesting because all six teams knew if we win we're safe all we have to do is win this game and we're safe but um I don't think any of them managed to win uh, the games uh, maybe um no I don't think any of them managed to win so it was um it was a very very tight and everybody sort of looking over their shoulders and 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 checking other results and that's how we want it to be on the final day of the season we didn't didn't have much of a title race in La Liga this season but we did have one of the most dramatic um, relegation battles. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. We certainly did. And you mentioned Valladolid. They were the one team and the one game that stood still while we had all sorts of twists and turns going on at all of the other venues. So what did it say that they couldn't do enough on the final day to control their own destiny, to try to win, but ultimately they had to settle for that nil-all draw? Uh, Teo, they, they, they were at home. It was a packed house, 25,000 at the Estadio José Zorrilla. All they needed to do was beat Getafe to stay up, and they didn't manage a single shot on goal. And I think the fact that they went they went down with a whimper, finally. They went down with a whimper. It wasn't that, you know, they tried everything and they threw the kitchen sink at Getafe, but they just couldn't find a way through. It was a really disappointing end to the season. And um, I think that's why a lot of Valladolid fans are, are, are very sort of uh, despondent about how they were relegated. 
I think their very high-profile man, um, a very high-profile president in Ronaldo Nazario, is also extremely disappointed with the with how they went down. And um, yeah, I mean, when when you, when you go down, knowing that all you have to do is 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 win against a fellow struggler, and you don't manage a single shot on target in 96 minutes, um, then you know you can't have too many complaints. They do have complaints because a lot of teams do have complaints about. The referees this season, but let's not get onto the referees' tail because we could be here all all all, all day. A lot of um, a lot of uh, teams have, uh, have have question marks about refereeing in La Liga this season. Uh, but yeah, Valladolid have gone down, and you know what? I think they probably deserve it. Well, I wanted to ask because all the teams had destiny in their own control, and is that a, a vote of confidence for head-to-head results being used instead of goal difference? Is that something that's an annual debate in Spain? Because, of course, in the Premier League, for example, it's goal difference. In Spain, it's head-to-head. Is this something that perhaps, uh, you know, is a, a debate that uh, should take place a bit more? Um, not really, actually. I think everyone, everyone's pretty used to it being... Um being at the head-to-head here rather than goal difference. If, if anything, it, it, it's people from outside coming into the league and getting to know the league and realising that, oh, hold on a second, it's 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 not goal difference, it's it's head-to-head and it's more of a surprise to them. But here in Spain, nobody's really suggesting that it should be um, it should be goal difference in, in, instead of uh, head-to-head. And actually, if you think about it, maybe the head-to-head, is it fairer? I mean, two two teams, you know, who, who, who decides, you know, decide how they stay up? Well, maybe the actual... Games between those two teams. Who's a better team? Who's been better this season? Um, maybe head to head. I think um, I quite like it actually. Obviously, I re- raised in London, raised on the Premier League, but coming here, been here for the last 11, 12 years, and I've gotten gotten used to it and actually quite like it. So yeah, I haven't got a problem. Where, where it is problematic is that it gets complicated. So if there's more than one team level on points, then they go into sort of a, a mini league, and it's the points that they've accrued in matches between them, uh, between all different teams. Uh, that uh, that determines who's uh, who's uh, who's staying up. And there was one scenario where we could have had five teams ending on forty-one points. Five teams, and then you have to go and see the individual results between each one of those teams and see who's picked up the most number of points. And yeah, then it would have got really, really, really complicated. But um, I, I actually quite like it. Well, let's just briefly say goodbye to the three relegated teams. And I'd like to ask you, what does La Liga lose? Because uh, having uh, edited uh, the mini matches and highlights for a number of La Liga games for Optus through the course of the season, I really like Gonzalo Plata. I'm I'm sad to see him go uh, along with Valladolid. As you say, the rest of the team couldn't actually lay a glove, couldn't get a shot on goal in their final game. And, and down they go, but with 11 wins and 40 points. But what do we lose from each of the three relegated teams, Valladolid, Espanyol and Elche? There are some players that have gone down that uh, you might not be missing for too long because I'm sure there will be teams that will be uh, potentially looking at Gonzalo Plata and other other players like him and, and, and trying to keep him in La Liga. But yeah, in terms of the three individual teams, listen, Elche, Espanyol and Valladolid went down. Of those three, Espanyol are by far and away the biggest club. Espanyol are seventh on the all-time points list in La Liga. This is a big club. This is a historic club. This is a club that is usually in La Liga. So you lose a big fan base, you lose the Barcelona derby, which is, okay, it's more important to to Espanyol than it is to Barcelona necessarily. But this season, Espanyol got a point at the camp now. They're they're a side that really gets up for um, their games against Barcelona and always takes it to to them. And um, yeah, I think uh, Espanyol are, you know, one of the big, 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 
I don't want to say sleeping giants, but it's it's a team from a, a big city with a big fan base, a decent stadium, and they should not be in the second division, and they have not been in the second division for the majority of the last three decades. Elche and Valladolid are also a historic clubs. This was Elche's centenary year. And they really did not expect to be uh, celebrating it with a, with a relegation. And uh, via the lead as well, are from a relatively big city with a, a decent fan base. This was their their record number of season tickets that they'd sold in, a, in, in one season. I think it was around 22,000, 23,000. So good support there. But in terms of sort of selling La Liga to an international market and getting people really hooked on it. I, I wouldn't say that Valladolid and Elche are necessarily clubs that are going to be vital to that. But I think Espanyol, the, the the league do miss, will miss them. Big club, the derby with Barcelona, some some strong players as well. So yeah, I think they're, they're, they're quite a big miss. And just briefly, uh, La Liga Smart Bank, of course, uh, our Optus Sport audience does get one feature game a week and we're currently in the playoffs. So tell us about the two teams that are already coming up to La Liga and then maybe your pick for who will be the third to join them. So we've got Granada and Las Palmas who are coming up. Granada who uh, got relegated last season on the final day of the season actually. They were outsiders to, to go down but they did and they've come straight back up. They um, they uh, won the uh, title. A very, 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 very tight uh, Liga Smart Bank it has to be said. There were uh, four or five teams who could win it on the uh, f- uh, coming into the last couple of weeks and it ended up being uh, Granada and uh, Las Palmas are back in after a, a, a few years away so uh, good to have uh, teams from I like to see all of Spain represented and Las Palmas are from the Canary Islands, which are an archipelago of of uh, islands just off the coast of Africa, a two and a half hour flight from uh, Madrid. So it's, it's quite far away, but it's nice to have all of um, Spanish territory uh, represented in La Liga. So good to have a Canarian team in there with some with some nice players, actually. And now we've got the um, the, the playoffs. We're midway through the uh, uh, semi-finals and uh, Levante beat Albacete 3-1 so I think it's pretty uh, safe to assume that they'll be in the final and then it's either Alaves or Eibar they drew 1-1 in the first leg I think Alaves are going to make it through so if we're looking at Levante or Alaves um, two sides that were in La Liga last season and, and are looking to come back immediately I, th- I, th- I think logic dictates it's Levante because they play they played Alaves twice in the regular season and beat them 2 nil twice. So logic would dictate that they've got the beating of them this season. But it's the playoffs. Anything can happen. But yeah, if you're asking me to predict who's coming up there, and I think you are, I would say Levante. But with the caveat that it is the playoffs and, and strange, strange things tend to happen. No, well, we will, we will take that uh, on notice. <laughs> now, uh, b- before we move up to the top end of the table, I have one more on the relegation battle just finished, and that is who was perhaps the luckiest team to survive the drop? And uh, if it is the same team or maybe a different team, who has the most work to do in the off-season to avoid falling into the bottom three? Valencia. I mean, v- Valencia have the most work to do in the off-season to, to get to where they need to be. Um, Valencia are such a massive club. I mean, it's hard to sort of um, make people who don't live in Spain understand what a big sporting entity they are, but they are absolutely huge and enormous, demanding fan base who are used to seeing this team uh, be successful. Valencia finished 16th this season. They've only ever finished 16th once as low as that in their 104-year history, and that was the only time they were relegated uh, in 1986. This is not a team that is involved in relegation battles. This is a big European club, and um, they finished 29 points off the Champions League spots, so they've got an absolutely enormous, enormous task at hand to try and get back where this club should be. Um, 
I say they were lucky to survive the drop. I think they were quite lucky to survive the drop. Lucky and and maybe give credit to the manager, Ruben Baraja, who decided, you know what, I'm going to give the kids a chance. I'm going to give youth a chance. And he brought in players like Javi Guerra, like um, Alberto Mari, and like Diego Lopez from the Youth Academy, who all scored really important goals. And without those goals... Without those goals, Valencia would have been relegated. So I guess you can call it luck for the manager to uh, take a gamble on these kids and it pay off. Or, or maybe we should give him some credit and he uh, saw things where other people didn't necessarily see. But Valencia have got a massive, massive job on their hands to get back where they where they need to need to be. They were They were close to going down. They were very, very close to going down. They didn't. And there was a big relief, I think, amongst the fan base on, on, on Sunday evening or Monday morning. Not Australian time when they didn't go down, and then there was a small, the, the sort of slow realization that, whew, okay, we're safe, but we finished sixteenth. We finished. This can't happen again. It can't happen again for Valencia. So yeah, they have massive, massive work to do in the summer to make sure that they're not involved in this ludicrous relegation battle. They should be absolutely nowhere near this. Well, watch this space. We'll see if they can make the moves or if the turmoil will drag into another campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking speaking of turmoil dragging into another campaign, let's talk about our champions, Barcelona. Of course, nice, it was a, a nice. runaway title win in the end. Ten points clear, so arm's length and obviously a goal difference of plus 50, only conceded 20 for the entire campaign. A lot to like about their league form, but put it in a broader context for us as to where the club is at, because it's not just about the league, it's about the financial situation, it's about how they went in Europe. I mean, we can certainly celebrate them, though, for what they achieved over the 38 games in La Liga. Yeah, and those stats you said would have been even better had they not won the league so convincingly. So, you know, they finished 10 points ahead of Real Madrid um, and uh, they finished with 20 goals conceded had they not won the league with four four games to spare uh, they would have um, they, they would have won more 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 games and and conceded fewer goals they lost three of the last four games because they'd basically you know we're champions we don't really need to try so those stats would have been even better as it is um still very very impressive considering that last season they finished 13 points behind Real Madrid, so it's a it's a 23 point swing in their favour. And um, yeah, you know, massive credit to uh, Xavi Hernandez and, and and what he's achieved. That said, uh, last summer was pretty uh, tumultuous for uh, Barcelona. All the economic levers that were pulled, there were uh, signings made, a lot of money was spent. Big gamble from Juan Laporta, the president, investing money now to bring success now, but also forfeiting future financial gain by selling off assets now. So he's um, he's gambled. And at the moment, it's paid off because they won the league. Fine, good. Now, next season, they have to improve in Europe because really it was massively, massively disappointing to go out at the group stages of the Champions League once again. I mean, this is unheard of. When when Messi was there, that would be absolutely unthinkable. But it's happened a couple of times now and it, and it really can't for Barcelona. Not least because of their image, but also economically. You know, you, you, you can't be going out of the Champions League if you're trying to rebuild this this brand. So there is work to do. Um, there's work to be done within the La Liga financial fair play uh, restraints, which is what is, um, I don't want to say holding them back, because I think it's a good thing that there is financial fair play in La Liga, but it's what's making things uh, more difficult for them. It's what's making the uh, the return of Lionel Messi uh, potentially quite tricky uh, as well. But I think it's going to be another fascinating summer for Barcelona because they have to bring pe- people in. Uh, Xavi said, you know, I, we, we need to strengthen. We genuinely need to strengthen. But they're also going to have to let some players go. It's true. 
Busquets is off the wage bill. Julie Alba is off the wage bill. This, you know, they 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 sold Antoine Griezmann as well, so he's no longer there. So that was their last season. So they have gotten some people off the wage bill and, and reduced them, but they need to do more. They need to do more if they're going to be able to um, register and, and give new deals to players that need new deals, like Ronald Araujo, like you know, Gabby. And um, and then go into the transfer market and, and and splash some cash. So there's there's loads of work to be done off the field this summer for Barca again. How much of this though is balancing the books of the wages and the players that come and go and how much they're paid and their contracts and how much they're renewed for and how much of this is at the mercy of what assets or economic levers the club can still pull? Are there you know buildings, uh, territory, assets? Uh, intellectual properties that Barcelona can imagine and then monetize in order to assist the football operation um, yeah I'm not sure how much I'm not sure how much is left I mean they did uh, sell off quite a lot last summer so I think they'd be trying to trying to avoid that where where possible and this this summer focusing on as you said re- restructuring the squad and and um, balancing the wages, which is obviously very, very important. Like I said, they've got you know, Jordi Alba was on a massive, massive wage, and and he's left uh, for the final year of his contract. So that 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 will help. Busquets the same. Uh, Gerard Piquet obviously left earlier this season as well. So um, that 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 will help Barcelona hugely. Um, but yeah, they've uh, they've still got work to do in balancing the books. I don't think there's too much left for them to sell off in terms of uh, levers. They they're cutting costs as well. They closed their TV channel, Barca TV, um, ceased to exist. Uh, it was 110, 120 people employed there. No longer, no longer. Um, so they they they're cutting costs on on that kind of level as well. Oh, and, and all this is happening, uh, Teo. While next season they're going to be playing at the Olympic Stadium, while the renovations happen to the camp now as well. So. They've, they've, they're sort of fighting fires on, on all fronts. It's a very, very busy time for uh, for Barcelona, and it's going to be for a while, I think. Well, tell us how much stock we can put in the daily reports that Leo Messi wants to come back to Barcelona. Obviously, the, the global media, I only speak English. I don't have the advantage of being able to read Spanish like you do. How much different is the reporting in Spain uh, and close to the scene as opposed to what the world media is feeding out about the daily suggestion that Leo Messi wants to come back? Um, I'll, I'll tell you the suggestions or the feeling that I get from from you know listening and reading to all the stuff here in, in, in Spanish. It feels like both sides are trying to show like they did all they could for Messi to come back to Barcelona, but it wasn't quite possible uh, in the end. Uh, that that I'm not saying it's um, that they're putting on a sort of a sh- show or something, but I, at the same time, I, I find it difficult to believe that this is seriously, genuinely going to happen. And I think it might be in everyone's interest to, for them to say, oh, you see, well, we, look, we tried. We tried to make it happen, but it just wasn't possible. And so Messi can go off and, and make a lot of money elsewhere and Barcelona can continue to sort of rebuild without him and without needing to um, restructure things financially to to accommodate him. So that's, that's the feeling I'm getting from what I'm seeing and from what I'm reading. It just feels very difficult for him to return. There, there are just so many obstacles and... I'm not sure if it's worth it for Barcelona. Genuinely, it seems a ridiculous thing to say. Obviously, Lionel Messi, possibly the greatest player of all time. If you can get him, you bring him back into your team, right? 
Maybe not. Maybe not. You've moved on. You've moved on from him. You've just won the league. To bring back 35, 36-year-old Messi now and try and shoehorn him into this team at the expense of younger players and their potential development, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't feel like the right move footballing-wise. Maybe maybe off the pitch it would help things um, quite a lot for uh, for Barcelona. But in terms of football, it doesn't necessarily seem like the right right decision. And then last one on Barcelona. Who is top of the shopping list then? Because uh, any player in the world would love to be linked to them. I see a couple of World Cup stars like Randall Kolomouani from Eintracht Frankfurt or Sofian Amrabat from Fiorentina, uh, some of the latest names to be attached to a potential Barcelona move. But with your insights, who do you actually think is a, a realistic target that we might see pull on their colours for next season? Anyone who is cheap, Teo. Anyone who is cheap who can come here without a big... Yes, but um, I'm I'm cheap. I won't help them. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, you could do a job at right back, maybe. Um, it's, um, it, it's difficult because it, it's difficult to sort of um, reconcile this notion of Barcelona being a huge club and, and then spending all this money on transfers last summer and then this summer thinking, actually, we don't really have that much money to spend on transfers. And if anyone's going to come in, it's got to be someone... Cheap and ideally free. Uh, I think Inigo Martinez is coming, uh, the uh, centre-back from Athletic Club. Um, they've been strongly linked with him. He's said goodbye to Athletic Club, uh, I think it was yesterday, so he's definitely leaving there. He hasn't announced where he's going, but he was strongly linked with Barcelona, and he's a free agent. They're looking at free agents. Um, Ilkay Gundogan, um, as you mentioned, you know, someone like Sofian Amrabat could come in. Um, but we're not talking about major, huge uh, superstars or, or, or the outlay that they had last summer when they spent you know, 60 million on Rafinha, brought in Robert Lewandowski, etc., etc. That's that's not going to happen again. Let's talk about Real Madrid now, and perhaps the burning question that needs to be resolved before their off season can even start is: What is the future of Don Carlo, Carlo Ancelotti? Has Real Madrid set a deadline for him to commit to next season and say, I am back, we are building, and actually put an end to the speculation about the Brazil national team, something which has lingered for months and has never really gone away? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, I think now it's it kind of has gone away. And, and, and I think, yeah, Ancelotti is going to be here uh, next season. Uh, he's, um, he's, he's, he said that. Maybe it took a little bit too long to uh, come out and uh, uh, publicly fully declare that he was going to be here next season. But yeah, I think uh, Ancelotti is going to be here next season. They're working towards what they can um, what they can do and what they can rebuild because there is going to be a bit of a rebuild for uh, Real Madrid. A lot of players have left, are leaving, um, not least Karim Benzema, which requires significant um, restructuring of the squad and one that they didn't necessarily envisage. I think this blindsided quite a few people. Uh, so yeah, Carlo Ancelotti is going to be there next season and uh, he is going to be uh, at the helm of um, trying to fit someone into Karim Benzema's boots, which is not going to be easy. Well, handling that generational change, uh, I assume then that Carlo Ancelotti is the right man to do so. Uh, Karim Benzema has been announced in Saudi Arabia uh, just this morning, Australian Times. So he was always leaving and the farewells had been conducted, but now his next move is known. But how do you think the other veterans of this team will be handled by Carlo Ancelotti from here? Well, he's always been very... Um loyal to uh, his uh, his uh, close close uh, players and uh, there have been quite a few question marks from Real Madrid fans this season when he kept playing Tony Cross kept playing Luka Modric in midfield but he he uh, he believes in them and and both of those are going to 
players are going to be here uh, next season. So we'll see Tony Cross and Luka Modric in midfield again next season. Surely not as much, and particularly Luka Modric, who's who's going to be 38 um, and played a lot of football this season. Okay, admittedly less than the previous season, but still played a lot of football. He surely has to begin to understand that um, he won't be starting every game. At least we think not, Teo, because I thought that this season, and then when the big games games came, bam, Luka Modric, centre of midfield, and actually uh, still showing that, that, that he's got it. He's someone who looks after himself extraordinarily well. He's completely dedicated to football, completely obsessed by football, watches loads of football at home as well. He's someone who genuinely loves the game. So Modric will keep going as long as possible and as long as Ancelotti keeps playing him. But I think there is broadly speaking, a, a general understanding that, that this season there does have to be, or next season there does have to be a generational change, particularly in midfield with Modric and Cross a year older and the likes of Tramini, the likes of Camavinga. We think Dani Ceballos might stay. Fede Valverde is there as well. There, there are youngsters there who are definitely able to be important for uh, Real Madrid. I'm not going to say they're going to be able to replace Cross and Modric because I think they're two of the best midfielders of all time, but they're, they're certainly well-placed Real Madrid in midfield to handle that change when it comes. Give us a heat check on Jude Bellingham's move. Uh, likely versus unlikely, soon versus not so soon. Obviously, the transfer fee, Dortmund are going to look to uh, cash in as best they can. Uh, is that the big domino that has to drop before Real Madrid's other transfer business of the off-season can take place? Uh, yeah, no, the heat uh, map or is that, uh, yeah, Jude Bellingham has long since been a really, really, really uh, strong transfer target for uh, Real Madrid. I was told... Oof, about a year ago, was it a year ago? Maybe a year ago that they were going to do everything in their power to sign him this summer, and it and it looks like it's um it's going to happen uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but this this Benzema thing, when I say it's blindsided people, this wasn't in the uh, this wasn't in the script for Real Madrid. They thought they'd have Benzema for at least one more year, and then next summer try and get the uh, try and get that French lad from PSG who they quite wanted and thought they had, and then didn't end up signing. So Mbappé in 2024 was the plan. Uh, but now, obviously, they've got to try and find a, a replacement for Karim Benzema, which could well be Harry Kane. He's certainly a player that Carlo Ancelotti thinks is capable of trying to replace a striker who is almost unique in Karim Benzema. In his own words, Benzema, I'm a number nine with the soul of a number 10. So he wasn't just all about scoring goals. He wasn't just about being in the penalty area. He could do all that, but he also did so much more. The dropping deep, the linking up, the passing, the runs, and something that Harry Kane is pretty adept at doing as well. So I think Kane is viewed as the uh, best possible replacement for a Kareem Benzema within the club. The problem is, <clears throat> we have to mention the L word, the L word being Daniel Levy, who uh, Real Madrid are uh, particularly wary of doing business with once again. They've done it before with Modric, they've done it before with Gareth Bale, and they are aware that he drives a hard bargain and he will try and get as much money as possible for his number one asset. Uh, that being said, one year left on his contract, don't want to sell to an English club, so Real Madrid might be a good option. Uh, the um, the option of Harry Kane coming to uh, Real Madrid is actually growing stronger and stronger. Uh, Real Madrid have liked Harry Kane for a while. Uh, when when they played Spurs in the Champions League, I think it was, was it about 2018, um, the um, 
the two board, uh, the president and his uh, chief exec of Real Madrid, Florentino Perez and Jose Angel Sanchez, they, they had lunch with, uh, with Daniel Levy and, uh, you know, they asked... They asked Daniel Levy, ah, you know, quite like Harry Kane, you know, he's, he's pretty decent. What? And they were quoted £225 million then by, by, by Daniel Levy. So he's, 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 OK, he's older, but he's got a lot more goals under his belt now. He's proved himself um, for a number of seasons. So I'm not sure what kind of price Daniel Levy will be quoting to uh, Real Madrid. That's why they're wary. But yeah, uh, Kane, to, Kane to Real Madrid is, 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 is a distinct, distinct possibility uh, if they can sort out the negotiations. Well, of course, as you would know, uh, Spurs have just hired an Australian, Ange Postacoglu, as well, giving that uh, Kane, uh, will he, won't he discussion significant uh, amping up, not just for Spurs fans, but for all Australian football fans, as we see how Ange Postacoglu handles the situation. One thing that was suggested on an earlier edition of the Gegenpod this week by Mark Schwarzer was that Kane's transfer fee in pure dollars or uh, euros might be frightening, but... What about a player swap? Is there anyone that Real Madrid might be able to hang out in front of Spurs to try and sweeten the deal and maybe reduce the literal amount of cash they would have to fork out in order to acquire Harry Kane? Um, I, I, <laughs> I saw a uh, I saw a suggestion a couple of weeks ago that they might be uh, tempted to try and include Edin Hazard as part of the deal, which I think would maybe the worst <laughs> deal in history because um, Edin Hazard is not the player that he. Uh, that he was. Anyway, he is no longer a Real Madrid player. They have parted ways with him a, a year early, so um, uh, there, there, there won't be any deal there. I don't know. Um, I don't know who they could include, to be honest, because the, the squad is is a little bit thin now. I mean, Marco Asensio's gone. Uh, Edin Hazard's gone. Uh, Karim Benzema's gone. In, ter- in terms of forwards, there's, there's no one that they could really drop in. I mean, maybe they might try and include a defender, possibly Ferlon Mundi at left-back, a French international left-back who's been injured this season, but some suggestions that he could be included as part of a swap deal. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that they have actually too many people at their disposal that they'd be willing to, to let go and would actually interest Spurs as well. I'm sitting here looking at the Real Madrid squad, and to be honest, not too many of them are, that the ones that they've currently got, are surplus to requirements, and they, the ones that they are wouldn't necessarily interest Spurs too much. So off the top of my head, maybe Mendy, uh, but other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm not too many, I don't think. Just on Eden Hazard and the end of his time at Real Madrid, obviously uh, had a great reputation from both Chelsea and also his performances for the Belgian national team. How do you assess his time in La Liga? And as far as the <laughs> perhaps biggest misfires, where does he rank, uh, especially when you weight it for the amount of money that was spent both on his transfer fee and on wages? Yeah, I mean, the wages, yeah. You know what, the transfer fee, I don't think it was... It wasn't a bad deal for Real Madrid. It was actually a pretty good deal. OK, he had one year left of his contract, but they got an elite, maybe top five player in the world when he signed. He was he was 28, just come off the back of an unbelievable World Cup with Belgium, just had been unbelievable for Chelsea, and they spent 100 million euros on him. OK, some people say it might have been elevated to, to quite a bit more than that, but the fee was officially around 100 million euros. That deal, is it's not a bad deal for Real Madrid. What subsequently happened has made it into one of the most disappointing transfers of all time, which is why... I, I don't want to use the word, you know, worst transfers, because like I say, the actual deal itself wasn't wasn't bad. I don't think it was, you know, wildly overpaid like like Philippe Coutinho, for example, when they when they signed him from from Liverpool, Barcelona. I think that was a bit too. This was this was different. This was an absolutely elite player for 100 million euros. It made sense. 
And he just thought, he, genuinely, his career fell off a cliff. He is only 32. He's only 32. And at the end, he was just an irrelevance. I genuinely sometimes forgot he still played for Real Madrid. That's how little he was involved. And yes, he had injuries. Yes, he didn't necessarily, and he, did, he, he didn't look after himself physically as he should. And it just all spiralled out of control. He was, he was here for four seasons. He didn't ever play a Clasico. He didn't play one Clasico against Barcelona. They played Barcelona 12 times during the times. He didn't ever play in a Clasico. He was here for four years. They signed him for 100 million euros. Edin Hazard, one of the best players in the world. It was just, it's just a staggeringly um, disappointing transfer and, and, and one of the most disappointing transfers in La Liga history and possibly anywhere, really, because given where he was when he came and where he is now when he's finishing, and there are suggestions he might retire, Teo. There are suggestions that he might just leave football age 32 because he doesn't really have any offers. Um, and I think he's clearly fallen out of love in the game with, with, with what's gone on here. And there are suggestions that he could retire. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the most disappointing transfers I can remember that has happened ever in, in, in any league. And it's a shame that for me, obviously, it happened here. Because when he, when he arrived, we were you know, doing backflips. It was, it was so exciting. What an incredible transfer to, to have here in La Liga. And we didn't see any of it. Any of what made him so special for Chelsea and for Belgium. Never saw it once here. Do you think the tell-all where he gives the insights as to why is coming? I mean, how I, I can't help but think of, on a lesser scale in terms of the money, Antonio Cassano and his <laughs> various off-field struggles and ability yeah. to mentally engage with what it took to be a professional. But Hazard's highs are so much, all due respect, so much higher than any peaks that Cassano reached. It's extraordinary that it makes the fall even more precipitous. Listen, I would read that book. If it comes out, I'm, re I'm ready to read that book because I would love to know what's going on behind the scenes because obviously stuff has gone on. You don't... You don't get to where he is now from where he was without, you know, um, it's not it's not just injuries. Let's put it like that, because he has had injuries. He has missed quite a lot of games through through injury, but it's not just that. So, yeah, if there's a book, if there's a documentary, if there's a film, I would watch it. I would read it because I would love to know. Now, you mentioned the Classico and Eden Hazard never taking part in one. But when we think of the Classico for about a decade uh, and it has slowly been uh, chipped away over recent seasons, it was Benzema, Bale and Cristiano for Real Madrid and Messi, Suarez and Neymar for Barcelona. And with Karim Benzema's departure, they're all gone from La Liga. And the great times of those front threes, the great El Clasicos, the great title races, they are finished. And how does it leave you feeling about both uh, what we got to enjoy, but also maybe uh, what needs to step into the void and, and fill those great high-profile identity players that really defined the two clubs for a generation? Well, we, we need them to sign some players with uh, surnames that neatly fit into a sort of three-letter abbreviation, don't we? So, I mean, <laughs> Real Madrid, they've got Rodrigo, they've got Vinicius, you know, we've got RV, VR, or maybe someone else. I, 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 I don't know. You're it, right. Hendrick, it can be REV. They can be the, the Rev yeah, team. I don't know. There you go. REV. I like it. I like it. Yeah, Hendrick, Hendrick's coming next year um, when he's, you know, when he comes of age. So, um, let's see let's see what happens with, the, with that. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it is a bit a bit nostalgic, and maybe we didn't realise at the time what we were being treated to, and I don't know if we took it for granted, but we're looking at two unbelievable uh, attacking tridents, which um, in their heyday were really quite extraordinary to see come up against each other, and you know we might not see anything like that again in 
in European football for a while, as you said, you know, th- th- six players, six extremely, extremely high quality players uh, coming up against each other. It was um, it was pretty special. So, yeah, nostalgic, but always looking forward and always looking looking forward to seeing what, what, what happens. But in terms of getting a group of those kind of players, <laughs> one side Real Madrid, one side Barcelona coming up against each other, fighting for titles like that again, eh, maybe we won't see it quite at that level. Stay with us here on the Gegenpod when we come back from this short break. We'll talk about Sevilla and also other Spanish teams in Europe and the prospects for how they might go next season. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We've got La Liga TV's Phil Kitramalidis joining us. And Phil, let's talk about Sevilla because they won the trophy with which they have had such an extraordinary love affair, the Europa League. They did it in a, a pretty incredible final. A lot of people didn't enjoy the final as a spectacle. I must admit, I kind of did. When they held up uh, 11 minutes of stoppage time, I was just having fun at that point. And then the penalty shootout win against Roma and the subsequent meltdown of Jose Mourinho after that. But what were your impressions on Sevilla doing it once again in Europe, given that they had such a difficult La Liga campaign? Yeah, the final was uh, was quite a spectacle, wasn't it? And, and not necessarily from a footballing angle. Twenty six minutes of injury time across the across the whole game. It was um, it was pretty wild. Sevilla were in the relegation zone in January. Uh, this was not supposed to happen, and yet it was almost uh, inevitable in the way it happened. And I think I don't want to sort of always bring this back to the to the big guns, and I'm wary of drawing the parallel with Real Madrid. But what Real Madrid did last season with the in the Champions League was so ridiculous and so unexpected, you know, beating the teams that they beat in the way that they beat them. Um, I think Sevilla did something similar in the Europa League. And, you know, these are two sides that have particular affinities with those two competitions and Sevilla. This is their competition, winning it for a seventh time in a season when they when they were when they were fighting relegation for half of the season to then go and to beat Juventus and to beat Manchester United and to beat Roma in the way they did and, and Jose Mourinho in the final. It's um it's really quite extraordinary. I don't say it defies all logic because there was hard work done by Mendilibar when he came in. But there is something as well that intangible uh, sprinkling of ma- magic if you like which football has and which we saw last season with Real Madrid in the Champions League which I think we saw a little bit with with Sevilla as well so Mendilibá came in and they were so bad that he himself said it's not going to take too too much for me to for me to change them because this is a good group of players they were just very very low on confidence they were confused uh, Jorge Sampaoli had them trying to do things which they didn't necessarily understand or want to do and Jose Luis Mendilibar simplified things and got it right rode his luck a little bit in La Liga it's true um, got some good results got some late goals got a dodgy penalty I think in, in, in Bilbao anyway they got some results that that helped them build confidence build momentum they rode their luck in in Europe as well though they were 2-0 down at Old Trafford they had been 
absolutely dominated by Manchester United. <laughs> In the last five minutes, they scored two of the most ridiculous goals, two wild own goals to get them back in the tie. And then they go and, you know, thrash United 3-0 in Seville. I mean, that was, like I said, it's like that intangible feeling that this team in this competition, special things happen. And it's, we see it with Real Madrid last season particularly, and we saw it with Sevilla this season. What's realistic for next season then? Uh, Monchi still at the helm. Uh, Mendilibar, I assume, is now keeping his job uh, and no more managerial turnover. But do we say they aim for the top four, they aim to get out of their Champions League group, or do they need to set their sights a little bit lower and just make sure that they're not battling relegation again halfway through next season? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, them battling relegation was uh, just you know, uh, not something that anybody had expected and anybody foresaw, and it's not acceptable for a club of, uh, of uh, Sevilla's stature and, and uh, fan base. So, no, obviously, they will need to... Rebuild and come back and try and fight for top four. That's um, that's where Sevilla need to be every single season. I mean, they ended up finishing 12th, uh, to be honest, because they didn't win any of their last uh, four games, but they were very much focusing on 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 Europe. But 12th is a, a really really poor season, staggeringly poor season for Sevilla. I think I think it's their lowest this century, um, to put it into context. So if had they not won the Europa League, it would have been a very very different matter. But they did. They're into the Champions League and things look very, very different. Mendy Libar is continuing. Monchi is the one who might not be there next season. In, yesterday, there was a story here in Spain that said that he's taking a few days to assess his future because this has been such a, a draining season. And the full weight of the fans' ire and the blame and the press were placed at his door when the season started so poorly for him. And he got it wrong in the summer. He did all sorts of uh, deals that uh, didn't work. And, and he just about pulled it off in January by bringing in some players that, 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 um, that helped and improved the side. But it was an utterly exhausting and draining season for Monchi. So he, at the moment, at the time of recording, is uh, reportedly considering whether or not he wants to go again next season. Uh, spoiler alert, I think he probably will. But because it was such an exhausting and emotionally draining season, he needs some time to think about it. But Sevilla are a side with squad, with budget, with uh, capacity to be fighting for the top four. And they absolutely should be aiming for that next season. Relegation, they flirted with it. They should be absolutely nowhere near the bottom half of the table, let alone the bottom three. Well, speaking of exhaustion, when we last spoke to you on the Gegen Pod, we were discussing Diego Simeone and potential burnout at Atletico Madrid. They did correct course. They did qualify for the Champions League. Can we assume that it is now business as usual for Atletico Madrid? Or do you think those issues that plagued them in the first half of the season may resurface if they think everything is just good to go to reset for another campaign? I um, I don't want to be simplistic about this, but there is perhaps um, a coincidence that things started to turn around for Atletico Madrid when Jao Felix went on loan to Chelsea. OK, it's not all down to him, obviously, obviously, but um, maybe there is something to be said in that as well. Uh, the uh, dressing room was uh, was calmer, the team started to play, and they had an extremely good second half of the season. If they had that kind of form in the first half of the season, they'd be challenging for the title instead of finishing uh, 11 points off. So they were really, really impressive in the in the second half of the season. It helped that Antoine Griezmann could play every game as well. There was that ludicrous contractual issue at the start of the season when he could only play 30 minutes. So when you've got your best player being able to play all game, every game, that also helps. And Jao Felix is a problem. He's back. 
manager doesn't really want him. The club would love to try and sell him, but are not going to get anywhere near the 125 million euros that they spent on him. So they've got this asset which has devalued enormously. They would have loved for his loan deal at Chelsea to gone very well, but it didn't. So he's back and he is a problem. And I'm not sure what Simeone is going to do with him. Maybe another loan. Maybe another loan because Simeone isn't going anywhere. There were suggestions earlier on in the season that it was either Jao Felix or Simeone. Well, obviously, the manager won. He's going to be there next season. And uh, let's see how they figure it out. But uh, yeah, um, they, um, they have to improve in Europe because they went out of a really, 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 really winnable Champions League group. It's not that they, did, they, they finished bottom. They finished bottom and it was uh, Bayer Leverkusen, Porto and Bruges. I mean, with all due respect to those three fine sporting institutions, Atletico Madrid should be winning that group pretty comfortably and they finished bottom. It was a, a catastrophe in Europe for, uh, for, for Atletico Madrid and that has to improve next season. Now, the race for the top four, it didn't have the most compelling finish, but up until about game 33 or 34, it, it was a, a fairly uh, torrid tussle between four or five teams. And in the end, Real Sociedad separated themselves from the chasing pack. So what can we expect from them in the Champions League next season? And are they in a position to push any closer to the title race or have they hit their ceiling as things currently stand? Um, yeah, I think title race, no. And also I'm... A little bit sceptical as to how this squad can manage Champions League football and La Liga next season. It's a it's a pretty young squad. Um, not too many of them will have had too much uh, Champions League experience. Real Sociedad haven't been in the Champions League for ten years, so it's a it's a big deal for them. And we'll see how much they invest in the in the squad to go and really sort of go again and try and make sure that they if not make themselves the fourth force in, 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 in Spanish football, try and uh, be regulars in the Champions League. That fourth spot in Spain, it feels like it is a little bit up for grabs. I mean, Villarreal have uh, been there in the last uh, few years. Real Sociedad, Betis, Sevilla, uh, Valencia traditionally, but they've been nowhere there. So in terms of in terms of that fourth spot next season, it's going to be open again, and it depends on who does what in the uh, in the in the, in the transfer market. I think it will be difficult for Real Sociedad to to compete in the Champions League and to compete as they did uh, this season as well. They had monstrously bad uh, injury problems through a huge swathes of the campaign. They sometimes had eight, nine, ten players out, and what they did is they brought youngsters in from the from the uh, youth academy. Uh, mentioned them in my season wrap article uh, for uh, for Optus, and it's quite extraordinary. 27 outfield players have played for Real Sociedad this season. 18 of them have come through the youth academy at Real Sociedad. 13 of them are local lads from the from the province where Real Sociedad plays. So they've 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 used the youth academy very very well. It's got them to fourth in La Liga in a very open league where fourth spot was wide open. Is that going to be enough for them to push in the Champions League and push further up in the league? In I, I can't see it myself. I can't see. It. I think it's going to be difficult next season. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to be wrong, uh, but I think it's going to be tough for them.
And if I can get your thoughts on the other European qualifiers, Osasuna, who made the Conference League, Villarreal in the Europa League, and a team that, particularly in the first half of the season, I always hoped that I got assigned to edit their games, Real Betis. I really enjoyed watching their games, particularly in the first half of the year, though, before their form became a little bit more shaky. Um, Is it an inevitability that we'll see a a Spanish team in the final or on the dais in the Europa League or Conference League next season with the quality of teams that have qualified? Notwithstanding, of course, that anyone that finishes third in their Champions League group might end up there as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we need to we need to see what Sevilla do in their Champions League group because if they finish third, we all know what's going to happen in the uh, in the Europa League. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we 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 like Osasuna, right? Because of you know John Aloisi and and and, and all that, and it, it's great to see Osasuna back in in uh, in Europe. Uh, Sixteen years after their last uh, continental adventure, they've deserved it as well. It's a really um, it's a likable club with what they've done. Uh, the stadium is fantastic. There's a real communion between the fans and the players there that you don't necessarily get in, in other stadiums. And, and, and the manager has, has worked wonders as well. So I'm, I'm, it feels like a good fit as well, the Conference League. They'll take it seriously. They'll be up for it. And uh, uh, there'll be a match for anyone in that competition, uh, particularly at home. Betis, I was I was disappointed by Betis, but yeah, you're right. First half of the season, they were playing some nice stuff. They've got some extremely talented players: Sergio Canales, Nabil Fakir, uh, William Carvalho, Guido uh, Rodriguez. They're you know seriously good players. Second half of the season, I felt they lost their heads quite a bit. They had 15 red cards, Taylor. 15 red cards this season. It's more than any team in any major league in Europe. And yeah, okay. There's a um, conversation to be had about the officiating in in Spain in general and the number of red cards that were shown, which was far, far more than in any other uh, league. But still, Betis getting 15 is ridiculous. And also, they commit the second lowest number of fouls per game in La Liga. So we're talking about them losing their heads. They're not sort of wild, they're not consistent fouls. This is just them not knowing how to manage matches, which is... Strange, considering that they're managed by Manuel Pellegrini, who is a manager known as the engineer, who likes to control and be calm and uh, be able to, 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 to see off these kind of situations. But I felt that Betis um, lost their heads and, and missed out on quite an actual good chance of, of finishing in the top four. And then Villarreal, uh, they pushed Real Sociedad. They were the last ones that were uh, in with a shout of finishing uh, fourth. They had a difficult season because they lost to Naomi. That wasn't. It's difficult when you lose a manager and you're doing all right. It's not like they changed manager because <laughs> because they were uh, struggling. They were doing okay. Um, he'd had great success in Europe in the previous seasons. And then Aston Villa came and they had to completely rechange things. And in came Kike Setien, a, a different kind of manager with a very clear and different style of, of playing football. And that took a while to adapt to. So um, I think fifth is not a bad uh, finish at all for uh, for Villarreal, but yeah, I was a bit 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 disappointed about uh, Betis and and Betis actually they they, they 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 played Manchester United in the Europa League and they rested players for that game because they were trying to push for the top four in La Liga and I was thinking well if you if you're going to get into Europe at least take it seriously at least against Manchester United as well and it just felt like I don't know the the whole of Betis's second half of the season was quite disappointing to me because they had the squad there they have the, the the project the manager the fan base to be you know really doing something quite impressive and they just sort of tailed away for me 
So let's take a quick look at what might be coming up in the off-season. We did discuss the changes of teams, promotion and relegation. We have discussed the transfer prospects of Barcelona and also Real Madrid. But is there anything else that we need to keep an eye on or that you might have flagged? I did notice that uh, Gabri Vega, when he was subbed off uh, after scoring both the goals for Celta against Barcelona, was incredibly emotional, the 21-year-old, because the speculation was it was his final game. But is there an obvious landing spot or is his landing spot already known and is there anyone else on the move either into or out of La Liga that we need to keep an eye on? Uh, Gabri Vega was very strongly linked with Real Madrid earlier on in the season but those um, those rumours have cooled as the Jude Bellingham transfer has uh, become more uh, more concrete so uh, Gabri Vega is now being linked with Chelsea. I would love him just to stay at Celta, stay a little bit longer, stay a little bit longer. He's, just, he's had one really really good season and actually, if you push me, he's had two-thirds of a, re- of a really good season because the last few games, uh, last, yeah, maybe 10 games or so, he hasn't been at his best. And, and that was perhaps one of the reasons why Celta Vigo were uh, in the relegation battle. So um, I think it's maybe a maybe a bit early for a, a £35 million move to Chelsea for Gabri Vega after you know, two-thirds of a good season. But... But who knows? Nobody, nobody listens to me. But yeah, um, Gabri Vega could be on his way out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to try and sort of highlight talent from La Liga, which might be pinched by the by the Premier League because it seems to happen Fair every enough. single every, every single every single summer. But yeah, there's loads of great players oh. here, and I, and I just hope that they stay here. Well, Phil, the floor's yours for uh, sort of the final word on the season because um, there are some topics that we haven't got to as part of this chat. Obviously, we've really focused on what happened on the final day and on the pitch, but you also said a couple of times you made mention of the refereeing situation and the number of red cards. Uh, Of course, Barcelona's off-field financial struggles, uh, the various uh, issues around fan behaviour and racist fan behaviour in La Liga this season. There has been a full roller coaster of things that have gone on in La Liga over the course of the season. But if I was to give you the final word for our Gegen Pod audience, what impressions and sort of what lasting memories, but also uh, lessons, did the season leave with you? Yeah, I think lessons might be uh, might be a good word. Um, I think the uh, the racism debate, uh, with which has been sparked by uh, by the racist abuse received by Vinicius, actually feels like it could be a turning point, not just in, I don't want to get too deep here, not just in Spanish football, though, but potentially in Spanish society as well. It's um, it's 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 sparked conversations with, with I've had it with Spanish friends, you're talking about things that people haven't necessarily spoken about before. Why is this offensive? Why can't we say this? What's the difference between just insulting someone and then racially insulting them as well? These kind of things which haven't necessarily been highlighted before in in sort of common society with, you know, friends talking to... People are talking about that now more. I'm not going to say that this is some huge revolution and everything's going to change. No, there's a long, long, long way to go and it's it's going to take time. But I have been heartened in the couple of weeks since since it happened about some of the um, some of the conversations that I've had on a personal level with people, and I feel like it might be the start of something. Like I said, there's a long, long way to go, but um, hopefully, um, hopefully people will begin to realise uh, more in Spain. Um, what is just completely unacceptable because honestly uh, I've been living here for 12 years and I've seen and heard a lot of things that I have genuinely been upset by and staggered how it can just go unchallenged and I'm not just talking about people on the streets I'm not just talking about people that I know on TV 
in the press, uh, on the radio as well, you hear things that are just ingrained into everyday language and, and uh, sort of society that is just not acceptable. So if people start questioning it a little bit more, and if people start calling it out as well, which is what Vinicius did, he went over to the fan, he pointed at him and said, you are doing this to me. If people are calling it out more, then hopefully that's the start of it not being normalised. And... Um, and yeah, so I think that's, you know, for me, it's something that's very, very important. Uh, it's an issue that's very, very close to my heart. I've, you know, we've tried to cover it on on um, on the content that I've, do I've done for Optusport over the uh, over the season. And it's something that we'll keep focusing on because it is seriously important. And sport is there for us to enjoy ourselves and, and forget about uh, things, serious things in life. But also it can be used as sort of an impact to to um, a catalyst for, for things. And I genuinely feel like this might be a catalyst, even though it might take a long time. So. So, yeah, there we go. That's my that's my final thoughts on the on the, on that matter. For this season, it's not my final thoughts, though, on it ever, because I'm sure we're going to come back to it at some point. Well, Phil, uh, it's been incredible to have you on our screens on Optus Sport, uh, both uh, with La Liga TV, but also uh, the paper round and uh, your writing and what you've contributed to Optus Sport throughout the course of the season. Uh, the off-season can't go quickly enough, so we can get back to our Sunday mornings and Monday mornings and quite often Friday mornings, too, enjoying La Liga action. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Gegen Pod once again. Enjoy the off-season, and uh, if that does involve a break, enjoy the break. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing you back on La Liga TV very, very shortly. Yeah, I hope I get a little break here. Just a little one, just a little one, and then we'll be back. Thank you very much. Yes, a big thanks to Phil Kittramelidis. What a sensational season we have had of La Liga on Optus Sport. Don't forget there's still live football going on. The J-League and K-League seasons continue. See broadcast details on the Optus Sport website and app. And it is a double drop of the Gegen Pod this week with a special edition focused on Ange Postacoglu's appointment to Tottenham Hotspur. You can join me, former Premier League stars Mark Schwarzer and Michael Bridges and former Socceroo Tommy Orr as we go in-depth on this groundbreaking moment in Australian sport. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. We will be back for a special edition of the Gegen Pod straight after the conclusion of the Champions League final. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. That's it for this edition, though. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This was the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Gegen Pod. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.